0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Three widows are featured in our readings, including the woman in the story of the widow's might, as we used to call it. The might was her tiny gift of all that she had. Which Jesus counted as higher than the big donations of the wealthy. Our other two widows, Naomi and Ruth, are also poor. Theirs is a beautiful Bible story with a harsh start and a happy end. Naomi had been married to Elimelech, with whom she had two sons. Then Elimelech died. In Israel, rain stopped, crops failed, and there was famine. Looking for food, Naomi led her sons to the land of Moab. They settled there, and the sons grew up to marry Orpah and Ruth, who were Gentile women of that country. Then both sons died. Now there were three widows and one family with no children, no money, and no way to make a living. These were dire straits. Generously, Naomi urged her daughters-in-law to return to the safety of their own parents' homes. Tearfully, Orpah said goodbye, but Ruth wouldn't leave Naomi. Where you go, I will go, she vowed. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Like the widow with her might, Ruth offered all she had. Ruth's great-grandson, David, would be king. I still have the Bible that this cathedral gave me as an ordination gift in 1982. New Oxford Annotated Bible, Expanded Edition, Revised Standard Version. It's handsome, black leather-bound, but scholarly and full of expert notes. The notes to Ruth date the story story's composition like Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, it was written centuries after the events that it describes had occurred. By then, after David, Israel was divided and had been conquered several times, most recently in 587. when Jerusalem was sacked, the temple destroyed and the Jews exiled to Babylon. In 538 BCE BC. Babylon fell to Cyrus, king of Persia, who let the Jews go home and rebuild their city and their temple. In scripture, the books of Isaiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah tell the story of that return. Ruth was written at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I'll quote from my old ordination Bible. Israel after the exile developed tendencies in two quite opposite directions. On the one hand, a major tendency to draw within herself and emphasize the exclusiveness of her election as God's chosen people. And on the other hand, a broad and liberal one, which sought to make of her a blessing in the midst of the earth. That's Isaiah 19.24 a light to the nations, that's Isaiah 49.6. Among the noblest monuments of this latter tendency are the books of Jonah and Ruth. So the Bible embodies a debate. Should we be like this or like that to be faithful? If we follow Thomas Aquinas, and I do, This is not a conflict between good and evil, but between two variants of good. According to Aquinas, whatever is of value and can satisfy desire is good. That is a definition of good without judgment. It would include things that we would judge as bad, But Aquinas would say that even with bad things, if we want them, it is because there is something good in them to attract us. In the book of Ruth, the Bible shows the goodness in Ruth, a foreign immigrant. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it lays the accent on Israel's unique vocation. Aquinas distinguishes two meanings of good, the worthy and the useful. He explains, that which satisfies of itself, we call worthy, and the satisfaction found in it, we call delight. Think of a smiling baby or a triple play in baseball. That which satisfies on its way to something else, he says, we call useful. The job that you love is worthy. But even a job that you don't enjoy is useful to the worthy end of providing for yourself or your family. For two widows, Naomi and Ruth, a husband for one of them would be useful. So Naomi whispers advice to Ruth as to how to land a wealthy one. Yes, money is useful, even though Jesus for Jesus This was not the point of emphasis. The potential husband that Naomi had in mind for Ruth, Boaz, was also worthy, a good man in his own right. So he was doubly desirable. In ethics, we talk about ends and means, worthy ends and useful means to reach them. Only a worthy end can justify a means. I started watching a television series, The Last Ship. In season one, a viral epidemic has devastated civilization far beyond the troubles in the book of Ruth. Two Navy ships in all the world, as far as we know, survive. A Russian one and an American one. They are both at sea with scientists aboard working to develop a vaccine. The Russian crew has gone rogue. It's Admiral promising his sailors that if they can develop the vaccine, they will rule the world and be rich beyond their dreams. The U.S. Navy ship remains committed to constitutional democracy. Militarily, their goal is to protect their scientists, develop the vaccine, And distribute it liberally, lawfully, and broadly to the nations of the world. Both ships have guns and use them, but only in the latter instance does the end justify the means. According to Aquinas, survival itself is a worthy goal. With epidemics, we have protocols for quarantines, sick people are confined. They lose their freedom to prevent a disease from spreading through a population. The end of saving many lives justifies a drastic means. We often say the end doesn't justify the means. In saying that, we are weighing worthiness and assessing usefulness. According to Aquinas, the means must be proportionate to the end. The goal of saving civilization would be desirable enough to justify some drastic means, but there are always limits. To gain the world, we should sacrifice our lives, but we should not sacrifice our soul. Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, wrote rules for modern ethics called Categorical Imperatives. One of his firm rules is not to forget that people are worthy, whether we are useful or not. Like the widow's mite, human value isn't measured by utility. We must therefore never treat each other simply as a means, but always as an end, according to Kant and Christ. For Ruth and Naomi, that requires appreciating Boaz not only as a provider, but as a human being. In ethics, problems are plentiful. One problem is when unworthy means are, or might be, useful. Last summer in the United States, we debated immigration ends and means. That debate was settled quickly, with almost everyone agreeing that separating children from their parents at the border is unworthy, even if it would be useful to deter unlawful entry. In that case, the end didn't justify the means. Now, a new development posing new debatable dilemmas immigrant caravans approach from the South moving up through Mexico. Imagine Ruth and Naomi in that crowd. Then the United States is Boaz, worthy and wealthy among the nations, and therefore doubly desirable. So here we go again, our country, debating ends and means. shamefully. Our debates are too often ugly, especially when racial bias grabs the microphone, contrary to our national ideals and the hope of our religion. Racism discounts other people's human value, as does calling people racist who are not. Such talk may be useful politically, but it is morally unworthy apart from race the debate is still fervent with high stakes that might start from basic economics in general immigration would be useful to employers and producers raising prices through increased demand and depressing wages by increased supply for employers and consumers it cuts the other w- employees and consumers it cuts the other way lower wages, higher prices. So here are Tom, Dick, and Harry. They went to Central High and were friends in homeroom. A given immigration law and its loose or strict enforcement may be useful to Tom, helpful to Dick, and hurtful to Harry. If Harry wants to tighten the border to protect his job, Tom might disagree but not from moral high ground necessarily. Maybe Tom is dean of an Episcopal cathedral and can safely feel that his job is safe. So who is he to blame his friend for thinking differently? Sally was in the same home room, and now she works as an advocate for immigrants, but always by legal means and with appreciation for enforcement because chaos makes Sally nervous, and lawbreaking makes her mad. Sally's cousin, Sarah, works in the same office as Sally, and Sarah is impatient with the rules. Her heart breaks for Ruth and Naomi, and she would cut wires to let them in, never mind the law. Peter, Sarah's son, rebels against his mother's laxity, which drove, drove him crazy growing up. At lunch after church, he voices concerns similar to Ezra's and Nehemiah's. Are the people in the caravan committed to the values that define our country? Do they love the Declaration? Would they defend the Constitution? Patrick, Peter's younger brother, pipes up. We've got to take the chance. Hope, not fear, should be our guide. Patrick reminds Peter that their own family ancestors had come from Ireland during the potato famine, and he doubts that when they loaded on the boats, the Declaration and the Constitution were utmost in their minds. And yet, their great-grandfather O'Connor died defending the Declaration and the Constitution in World War I, after hearing growing up that Irishmen were drunk and stupid. In the Second World War, his son, the boy's grandfather, earned a Purple Heart at Normandy, It's a family treasure. After lunch, Patrick drives home. He has a No Borders bumper sticker on his car. Behind him, in traffic, Maria is appalled. That is anarchy, she mutters. She is here on a green card that it took her years to get. Across America, such thoughts are batted back and forth across the dinner table. As the caravan moves closer, they will intensify. This is democracy at work, the benefit of living in a free and worthy country. Immigration debates are informed but not settled by the scripture. Jesus himself was not above the controversy. When a foreign woman asks him to heal her daughter, at first he declines vexed with an echo of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is Israel that he has come to save, he says. The mother makes a smart rebuttal, and he changes his position on the spot. You'll find that encounter in Mark chapter 7. Our country is worthy for the value that it places on us and the protection and weight it gives to our various opinions. We are free to share them, voice them, change them, vote them. I'm going to put the accent there. Every two years we arrive at polling places, bringing all our worthy and our unworthy stuff, biases, altruistic attitudes economic calculations, biblical reflections, family stories, political allegiances, oddball notions, temperamental quirks, lingering resentments, and when we remember to ask the Holy Spirit of the good, almighty God, and then when the poll worker says next, we step into the voting booth and we mark our ballots and we pull the lever and we go home. And the next morning, we wake up to find out what the majority has decided this time. Sometimes in a close vote, we wait and argue over weak recounts. Eventually, there's a verdict that we accept, and it makes us glad or sad or mad. And then we fold the newspaper and put it down and turn off the computer and the TV, and we dress, eat breakfast, and we get back to life. We do so knowing that there is a next election, and then another, and then another, always, every two years. And each election judges the debate for now, and the next one may open it again and judge it differently. Smart rebuttals change positions. Such a noble means is a worthy end in its own right, and every time, A cause for celebration.